0: Florida's Space Coast is one of the birdiest places in the ABA area in the winter months, and there's no better opportunity to experience it than the Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival back in 2024 from January 24th to the 28th. Keynotes from Sharon Steitler, Kevin Laughlin and John Kreicher, and Kevin Carlson. There are field trips, photography workshops, and more. It will be a great time. Early bird registration is open now through December 20th. So sign up today at scbwa.net. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It's Christmas bird count season. Merry CBC to those who celebrate. This weekend is the first of the period running through January 5th, for this, the 124th year of the Christmas bird count. It's nice that the first one was in 1900. It makes it easy to keep track. There are few community science projects for any taxa with that sort of longevity. While the data collecting aspect of the modern count is largely subsumed by eBird, there's still scientific value in the CBC in large part because of those old counts and our ability to determine changes in bird populations and local habitat over the last century and a quarter. But I would argue that the real value of the CBC, at least here in the 21st century, is largely that to our community. I still fondly remember my first Christmas bird counts. They were important milestones in my own history, my own story as a birder being able to join up with an established group of people and really work that segment of the count circle birding in places you probably wouldn't bird in your regular weekly outings. You feel like you're really contributing something to the science and to your birding community. It's gotten to the point that, for me at least, I don't really like participating in a CVC unless I'm with other people because that's the fun of it. I've, I've done counts where they've needed someone last minute to do a section, and, and you're by yourself, you're driving to some corner of some county, and that's, that's valuable, I guess. It's good for the county lister in me, but is it satisfying? Does it touch your birding soul in the way that birding in a group with a common purpose does? I, not for me, but certainly more power to those of you for whom that's every bit as exciting. We honestly couldn't do it without you. So if you're listening to this on a CBC or on your way to a CBC or with plans to do a CBC this weekend, I hope you have a good one. And I hope it's one of those with the potluck count party. Those are always the best. On the show this week, it's a holiday miracle. The podcast segment that was supposed to last one episode has lasted way more than that. More than eight. It's ten, actually. We're on our tenth. Um, Ted Floyd is back to talk random birds. We cover lots of passerines, two different hummingbirds. Who, how weird is that? Anyway, we grabbed the random number generator all after this week's rare birds. But first, a message from ABA Executive Director Wayne Clockner.
1: Hi, this is Wayne Clockner, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. And time is running out to make a gift to support the ABA before the end of 2023. By making a gift to the ABA, You're providing us with the resources we need to continue producing world-class stories from inside the world of birding, like the ones you've heard here on the American Birding Podcast. You'll help us continue building ABA Community and the ABA Community app, a place for birders to discuss all things birding and get advice and ID help from community experts on the go. And you'll help us continue producing birding and North American Birds magazines with in-depth information and stories from the world of birding and bird conservation. Make a gift before December 31 by going to aba.org appeal or by calling 800-850-2473. Your gift will help the birding community grow and thrive. Thank you. This is your Rare Bird Focus
0: for the middle of December 2023. It's been a pretty great year for rarities in the ABA area, but 2023 had at least one more absolute stonker, as our friends across the Atlantic say, in New Jersey, where the state's first record of red-flanked blue tail was seen in Ocean County. This highly migratory old world chat is almost annual in western Alaska these days. And there are a handful of records along the west coast from British Columbia all the way to central Mexico, surprisingly enough. But a blue tail on the east coast, that is something completely new. One of the more interesting things about this bird is that it's maybe impossible to know from which direction it came to New Jersey. The East Coast has seen its share of misoriented East Asian vagrants, and a bird that starts in Eastern Russia and goes more or less 90 degrees East instead of South and approximately the same distance as the normal non-breeding range in Southeast Asia could end up in New Jersey, but Red Flank Blue Tail is an increasingly regular vagrant in Western Europe too. And in fact, at least four individuals have been recorded in Iceland this fall. So one from Eastern Europe can't be ruled out either. It's an interesting conundrum for a fascinating record. Other firsts in the ABA area this week include a hermit warbler in Sumter County, South Carolina, perhaps even more noteworthy that it's away from the immediate coast. Hermit warbler is probably the least common of the western warblers to show up in the southeast, though there are a number of records around the Great Lakes and in the northeast. And in New Mexico, a Nuttings flycatcher in Sierra County represents a long overdue first for that state. Nuttings flycatcher has been regular in recent years in Arizona, but those in far western Arizona on the other side of the state from New Mexico go. No more. They can finally breathe easy. Interestingly, a Rufus-backed Robin, not a first, but still a notable find, was at the same spot. Those are the highlights for the past week. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. As it turns out, The period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the holiday season, is a very difficult time to get people to uh, agree to be on a podcast, to be interviewed. And two prior guests, prior ideas uh, did not pan out. I turn once again to my colleague, Ted Floyd. I know it was was only just last month that we did a random birds, Ted, but I appreciate your willingness here in this Christmas Bird Count season to come on and do another one with me hello Ted birding editor field guide author etc 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 hi how are you
2: uh good thanks Nate thanks for having me always happy to uh, to randomize it a bit here and and available which is always nice good stuff
0: yep. um it, it has not been that long since we did the last random birds I'm going to bank on our listeners knowing the rules uh, but the, just as I have a random number generator I have a list of birds that are shared between the states of Colorado and North Carolina. I use the random number generator to find a bird and we talk about it. Ted, since the last time we talked in November, you'll be happy to know that I went back through the last two oh, or three an years and I updated the list. There okay. were three species that are added that are now common to the uh, states of North Carolina and Colorado. So now instead of 380 uh, six, we have 389 species. Do you care to guess what those those three species were?
2: I'm certain that one is the limpkin. It is. One is um, the limpkin. So is three years, I um, think I would know the Colorado list better.
0: Yeah, the and, other two that... are, are additions to the North Carolina list. Not oh,
2: I see. So that makes it a lot trickier for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um are these sort of part of the uh that sort of suite of uh late fall vagrants to North Carolina? They are. They are. Okay, yes. so I'm thinking like along the line, I don't think this is it, but like along the lines of mcgillivray's warbler or something.
0: We do have like, several uh, records of McGillary's right, right, right. But, yeah, so, but yes, but in that
2: so, in something that, that, that guild. Kind of Yeah, yes, okay. So for, um for, nothing really leaps to mind now because I'm not that up on the North Carolina list, but uh something that it's something that should Shows up and yeah, and that whole um phenomenon of vagrants to the east, sort of mm-hmm. like after Halloween, which um I don't want to speak too glibly here, but was sort of like not really known until twenty or yeah. twenty-five years ago. Uh, you know, maybe some pioneers knew about it, but you know now everybody knows. Everybody, you know, a lot of birders go looking, sort of. That's right. Like starting around Halloween for like really exciting birds. Late November, early
0: December is an underrated period for rare birds in the southeast. Yeah, I
2: was just involved in. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like the other day with um looking at some images of a bird from, uh, Georgia. So just mm-hmm. south of you, uh, that it's an empty, and it turns out to be a least oh, flycatcher. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and of course you know least flycatcher sort of like a poor man's rarity, <laughs> uh, back East. And, <laughs> it
0: reminds um, it, me that I should probably yeah. put Western flycatcher on this list too, oh, there we it, are, Yeah, it was the, only I mean, a the, spa. Yeah, and the the, the photo looks
2: for all the world, stuff. like a, like a, a Hammond's flycatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bird was a, uh, it gave a perfectly typical whit call of a, of a, um, of a least flycatcher and it is in fact a least flycatcher.
0: So Oh, well, uh, for, for those people sitting at home waiting for us to get to the uh, the answer to that question. <laughs> to get underway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a thick-billed longspur oh, and plumbius varia, both of which were mm. added to the North Carolina list in uh, recent years. And I am now adding western flycatcher to the list as well because previously that species was a slash spa on the North Carolina list, mm. um, which means that um, I wouldn't have picked it up the first time. And now I can. So four. Four new species. We're up to All 390. Right. I'll have to update my random number generator. Ted, um, let's um let's move on from this uh this let's, banter, let, this vamping. On. Let's uh let's let's do the list. Let's hit the number okay. generator Great. and uh, get started. I uh, hit it. It is 70.
2: Right, 70 so early on in the checklist i don't know a rail or something or uh
0: know. it is a yeah remember this checklist is also oh oh, oh the new taxonomy old taxonomy. yeah, so i don't know if that even works anymore but yes it is uh it is a former aba bird of the year
2: a former aba bir- that early wow mm-hmm. uh drawing a blank here so it's, it's kind of, rufus hummingbird oh, rufus oh so we're this this new taxonomy right new rufus ta- hummingbird. Yeah, or, or
0: yeah. old i'm not sure which one it is it's the taxonomy from when we started doing this well, but gotcha. yes rufus yeah. hummingbird is number 70 on this list yeah former aba bird of the year the art was done by um john john sills is that right johnsville John? yeah 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 uh, north carolina a... right or at least he is. The yeah world. i yeah, run right? into it's him every once in a while
2: definitely yep. a theme there although i'll note that he uh, depicted the bird in uh Colorado in Colorado style yep. habitat yep. <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> so, yeah so
0: the um, habitat in north carolina when you encounter a rufus hummingbird it is tends, not tends to
2: have r- plastic red and yellow with some that's uh, uh, exactly some... <laughs> right yeah maybe <laughs> exactly.
0: some maybe some yeah yellow flowers maybe, and, sugar uh, water precisely
2: that's one of the great birds i um
0: Really a great bird. You know, yeah.
2: if we'd been doing this 25 years ago and I said, well, that's all a Colorado bird. And, and that's, mm-hmm. of course, not the case anymore. Just one of the most dramatic examples of a uh, a range shift of, of any bird in my lifetime. Oh, uh, the way sure. it's gone from being like a very rare at best back east to a... Um, you know, regular uncommon but regular uh, migrant uh, sorry uh, a winter across much of the uh the southeast right now that's just such a striking uh range change one thing that uh, i think is important to keep in mind with the um rufus hummingbird in addition to all the really really cool um population biology mm-hmm. it's just how amazing um it looks it's just this yeah it, it, and i i feel weird kind of saying this but like it feels like it should be like down in like you know northern peru with like shining sunbeams and marvelous spatula tails (laughs) and it's 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 a good hummingbird it's just like this glistening gold all all over um by the way it's the only hummingbird that has ever made it to the uh the palearctic. it's actually crossed the bering Strait.
0: well in the last uh several months Million it's, years. So for, that's right. Because
2: hummingbirds <laughs> used to occur like all over Europe, from what I gather. But, yeah. but um, you're right. In, in recorded history,
0: in recorded history. <laughs> that's right.
2: And um, so, I think mean, unbelievable migrant. You know, the bulk of the population is oh, in Canada, and and also in, in Alaska. Um, it is the. Um, Relative to its body length, it migrates farther than any organism on Earth. So, obviously, things like uh, Sooty Shearwaters and uh, Bar-tailed Godwits and uh, Arctic terns migrate farther than rufous hummingbirds do. But relative to its body length, it goes the farthest distance of all.
0: Yeah, Rufus hummingbird. Uh, it's is not it. Isn't it more of a kind of a fall species for you? I know they have that kind of cool elliptical migration, right. wherein they go kind of up the west coast in the spring and then right. down the central Rockies to exactly. correspond with the late summer bloom of mountain flowers.
2: Yeah. So it and also the Calliope hummingbird. That's mm-hmm. sort of our other elliptical migrant um, hummingbird. You mentioned uh, um, Bumblebee's Vireo at the outset. Cassin's Vireo is another elliptical migrant for us. Mm-hmm. Um, much more. Expected in late summer and and early, in early fall. The one thing, though, to say about the um, elliptical migration of the Rufus Hummingbird is that it um, it happens at a time of year that may catch some listeners by surprise. We see our first southbound Rufus Hummingbirds. Well, it's technically still spring. They start to show huh. up here. Yeah, southbound males, adult males, uh, start to show up in Colorado just before the summer solstice. So um, it's a bird that um, is thick in our area on, you know, quote unquote, fall, or let's say southbound migration by, uh, by early July. And the males are mostly gone by early August. And it's a kind of a rare bird for us, like uh, even like mm. the last lingering uh, young birds by about September 1st. So mm. um, it's, um has extremely sort of uh, pushed forward uh, southbound migration.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because September 1st is usually, well, actually it's closer to November 1st is sort of the time that we in the Southeast start looking for um, rufous hummingbirds at our feeders because, you know, in September late August and September, there's still quite a few ruby-throated hummingbirds hanging around, especially the young birds. Your feeder's going to be very busy with uh, the first-year ruby-throated hummingbirds kind of fueling up before they start heading south. And then you've got kind of a lull a little bit. There's still a handful of uh, ruby-throateds that hang around into October, especially on the coast. But in November, the clock kind of of ticks over, and that's when you start looking for, for rufus. And I've seen Rufus hummingbird in North Carolina a handful of times, um sometimes when I've not even really been looking for it because they they are they're just so so many of them. I would say that we get oh, geez three dozen every every year, um every winter, and some of these are birds that are coming back winter after winter after winter because we know because most of them are banded uh, yeah. in the state. We have two or three very uh, adamant hummingbird banders in the state that will go and and check out your, your Rufus hummingbird and put a little band on it and frequently they'll stick around for a while and, and come back the next year. And you can see that band on there and know that yeah. it's, the, it's the same bird, which is sort of an unusual thing for vagrants. I think sometimes we think of vagrancy, especially that long distance vagrancy is sort of a, a one-way trip. Uh, very mm-hmm. infrequently do the birds make it back to their, to their breeding ground again, but rufous hummingbirds do it all the time.
2: Yeah. yeah I might almost like, this is getting kind of technical here, but take yeah, exception to your, char- yeah, no, your characterization of the birds as vagrants at all anymore. To no, the, yeah, to the yeah, I, I mean, it's basically just a, um, large-scale movement of the population you know I, yeah. I, I I get that they're not as common in the winter in North Carolina as a Carolina wren or something like that but um, there's so many of them that um the, the phenomenon can't perhaps it isn't even really properly referred to as vagrancy anymore yeah. hey, um yeah. I, I mentioned the, uh, the how cool they look um they are cool vocalizations. they have this a uh, syllable um attack call to the zoo um it's it's quite distinctive at least here in colorado for us and um their display song which i don't think you ever hear in north carolina is just like incredibly yeah. powerful <laughs> it's, just, it's like loud actually um and then um just i would say among other even relative to other hummingbirds they're like really aggressive i mean all yeah, hummingbirds- i was just gonna say that's what <laughs> i
0: was gonna bring up <laughs> all hummingbirds
2: because- are fighters but you know you can you can you know If you just see a hummingbird in poor light, you know, just really acting aggressively in Colorado at the right time of year, you know, chances are it's actually a a rufous hummingbird. They're even nastier than the other ones. Oh,
0: I've seen them in places like Southeast Arizona, where you put up a hummingbird setup and you get you know a dozen species of hummingbirds coming to the feeder and the rufus hummingbirds and inevitably is the is the most aggressive hummingbird at those feeders chasing off even birds yeah. that are two three I, times I, bigger than funny they are.
2: You bring it, yeah yeah um, and how about oh, hundreds of times bigger so i was um, yeah, well, joking with, not, yeah. i was joking with somebody um about how i had seen a um a rufus hummingbird drive off a red-tailed hawk and she pointed out that she'd seen one drive off a black bear uh, I, and I, I mean, I don't know if it actually drove it <laughs> off. But it is definitely harassing the black. That is a,
0: maybe maybe several hundred thousand times the yeah. size of a Rufus <laughs> hummingbird. I, you 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 um bring to mind a memory of a uh, Rio Grande Valley bird festival, and I got a photograph of a uh, ruby of a Rufus hummingbird trying to drive off a Harris's hawk. So right. they they yeah they're not afraid of anything. So hey, a
2: bird with um. A- a lot of class, a lot of chutzpah, a lot of cool biology. It's yeah. got it all. I think it was one of our great birds of the year, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. That was a really, really popular one. All right, shall we hit it again? Let's do that. Okay, actually, before we do that, I um, I w- I was going to make the statement that I think that the Ruf- Rufus hummingbird is one of the birds that has been recorded in every county in North Carolina. It's uh, probably overstating it. It turns out I was, but that's not because of. The status of Rufus Hummingbird in North Carolina. That's because there are a lot of underbirded counties mm-hmm. in North Carolina where people perhaps haven't have seen Rufus Hummingbird, but haven't you know been plugged into the right, right uh, birding right. the bird, bird people to to be able to make that record known. But um, it's it's easily half the counties that the
2: listeners don't know either. how many counties in uh, there North are one hundred exactly. Oh my gosh, so that's a lot of Rufus Hummingbirds. Okay, right,
0: yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of looking at the map right now. It is, it is impressive. All right. Anyway, let's move on. Let's hit the number generator. See what we have here. 387. All right. So
2: at the very, 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 very back of the book. Yeah. This will oh, be, um,
0: no, I, 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 no, I didn't add them at the end. I put them in the right places, but yes, it is the very end. Yeah. So this must, what is, I mean,
2: we, we don't have a, let's see, uh, we don't have more let's seed eaters in common. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, what, what, I mean, the last, uh, Dick Sissel. I, I don't know. What, what is Dick weight? Sissel is the end. Oh, it's right before oh, Dick Sissel. It's not oh, Dick Sissel. Oh, it's, it's not Dick Sissel. So, uh, oh, okay, Lazuli bunting. It is Lazuli bunting. Uh, okay, nice Okay, cool.
0: <laughs> yeah. Lazuli okay. bunting or Lazuli bunting, however you want to pronounce the R-G-Y. precious gem. Um, it, that's, that's the bird, um, much, much more common in, uh, Colorado than in North Carolina. Yeah. College. So this a handful is pretty
2: of much, it's pretty much a Colorado bird. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, they do make it to the East Coast every single year. I mean, yeah. m- multiple birds do for sure. Um, for you all, it's a, often a, fe- a feeder bird and um, often a, yeah, often a fairly is. sort of a brownish bird. Although you get some blues and golds on those yeah, as well. But, um, yeah yeah. But it's a um, it's a magnificent bird. I, I you know, it, it's one of the great colorful birds of the ABA area. Just that you know that glorious blue all above and mm-hmm. uh, on the males the bright red swath. swathe. Um, across the middle, then the, the white, sort of a red, white, and blue bird, actually, mm-hmm. uh, just like eastern bluebird. Um It's gratifyingly common, uh, especially sort of in, like, foothills habitats uh, near where I live. You can, you know, kind of, you know, the way indigo bunting is for, for you all mm-hmm. in the east, but not quite like that, because indigo bunting kind of occurs, like, everywhere. <laughs> and largely bunning has a little bit more of a uh, sort of... Um, a Sorry, elevational, altitudinal restriction to it. But in proper habitat, it is a bird that um, you might easily see or hear, you know, dozens of on a really, you know, sort of active morning in um in June or July in, in Colorado. That great song. I actually think indigo has an even better song. Something that we um wrestle with a lot in Colorado is the uh the hybrids because uh indigo bunting also occurs here in pretty low densities mm-hmm. and they often find their ways to uh indigo bunt uh, sorry to Lagerie Buntings and uh, and mate uh, with them. So we have a lot of what we call Lagigo buntings. You know they're mm-hmm. <laughs> half indigo, half uh Lagerie, but um, yeah, so, yeah, and delete, to yeah, add you go. But, yeah, it just, uh, it, one of the really cool things about birding is that sometimes the really, really good-looking birds, I like Rufus Hummingbird, mm-hmm. or, or for that matter, um, Lashley bunting are, are super common. Uh, just one other thing I'll just say about Lashley bunting, because it kind of strikes a Western chord with me, is that it's a... um really uh, impressive molt migrant. So uh, this is a phenomenon that I think is sort of especially well-pronounced in the part of the world where I live, where the birds, after the uh, fairly early breeding season, uh, go somewhere not to winter, Mm -hmm. but to molt, and then they carry on uh, to their uh, wintering grounds a little bit later on. So our Lazuli buntings often get off the breeding grounds by um, like the end of June, early July, and then they'll go to like Arizona uh, and molt, and then continue on. So that's a a neat sort of like... uh, Inserted component of the annual cycle. You know, we often. I, I mean, I grew up often thinking of sort of spring migration, breeding season, fall migration, winter, and you have mm-hmm. to sort of insert that molt um component into the annual cycle with the Lazuli Bunting as well.
0: There, there are maybe three or four records. It's actually one of the less common Western vagrants. Yeah, right. So I would said, at least, at there, least, there's one in my county. It was one of those back, great backyard bird count birds that someone took oh. a photo of and uploaded okay. it, and everyone was like, "Wow, wish we'd known about this a week ago." Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a common bird here by by any means. Though I did have uh, an experience with Lazuli Bunting recently this summer when I was out in California uh, visiting family uh, in the Bay Area. I walked up to a park. Uh, my, my brother-in-law and his wife live in Oakland, in the hills above Oakland. And so I walked up to this park nearby and I was walking through looking specifically for a few of western, kind of northwestern birds that meet the southern end of their their range in the Bay Area and birds that I had not seen and birds that I was looking for as life birds, And um, I was walking along this path and I was like, oh, man, is that an indigo bunting singing? It sounds exactly like an indigo bunting. And then, you know, you make that immediate connection like oh well it's the it's the western version it's the lazuli bunting and didn't up getting eyes on it but it, it was kind of a morning where i got to experience a lot of those birds that are you know the western counterpart of birds that i'm very familiar with in the east and how those songs are actually very very similar um and you, you say indigo bunting has a nicer song that that may be true but to my ear the lazuli bunting sounded very similar to at least close enough to indigo bunting that I was immediately, you know, aware of what it was. And there was, there were a couple other species yeah. like that too. Black-headed and rose-breasted grosbeak. I heard black-headed grosbeak. I'm like, well, that sounds like a rose-breasted grosbeak. And, gross and um, a couple other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head, but Stellar's Jay and Blue Jay and s- things like that. But yeah, it, it's interesting how, how similar some of those songs, those vocalizations are uh, with those kind of West Coast, East Coast. Birds.
2: Yeah. I often, I like to caution folks, you know, here in Colorado that, you know, if you're just sort of glibly just, you know, um, mm, assuming mm-hmm. away every like... If you could just speak as a black headed or passerine bunny as a as a lager, like you might actually want to look at that bird. It might actually yeah. be not something less common than what than what you imagine. Um, since I hear them both a lot, I do mm. feel like I've sort of figured out the differences. To me, yeah, indigo is the, the front is a,
0: range is sort of the, that area where yeah, they do it's where come it all up comes together. together. Yeah. yeah,
2: but the indigo to me has really sort of a strongly paired and also sweeter mm. notes i have a mnemonic i came up with when i was, was a kid and it's sort of sophomore it was a switch swit, chew chew spit it out chew <laughs> <It's> a, to, <laughs> to me that's sort of what indigo is like it's really strongly paired notes and they're often kind of rich and and yeah. sweet to I me mean, um lazuli is more um disorganized and sort of buzzy um I think it can actually sometimes be confused with, like, um, not these aren't North Carolina birds, but, like, a green-tailed toey or yeah. um slate-colored fox sparrow. Those are these, like, like a mishmash of, like, buzzes and whistles. Uh, but that said, I have absolutely, like, thought I was hearing one or the other, and it turned out not to be. Um, yeah. And they learn each other's songs as well. Yeah. So yeah um, i like can switch true. songs but um yeah same thing with you know, um rose breasted and blackheaded uh t- to me again just since i hear a lot of though, I-, I do find rose breasted to be an especially um you know kind of like rich and low and deeply whistled song mm-hmm. but by golly i've sure gotten that wrong as well uh, the call notes are quite different though like to, to me um, right? and yeah the blackheaded and rose breasted have different call notes and um certainly indigo and um and um lazuli this is kind of funny but to me the, the call note for Lashley that i get tripped up on sometimes is virginia's warbler a bird that mm. you know it, it, they occur in the same habitat and they have pretty similar uh, chip notes so, yeah.
0: that may be a future bird to add to this list as uh we are still yeah i know right a, yeah virginia's a lot of warbler
2: records of virginia is i think like up to new virginia has yeah. one
0: yeah so it's been it's been close um all right are you ready to move on should we I'm do another ready one to move on yep. all right 227.
2: Alright, so still in the passerines. Like, yeah, I don't know, a wren or something. I'm not really sure where you are. but uh, so
0: This is uh, this is one of uh, my birds. This is great crested flycatcher. No hyphen. It is not a great crest. It is hatchery. a great crested flycatcher. Yes.
2: Yeah, but we have, yeah Brown hyphen crested flycatcher. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course you have great winged petrel with a hyphen, but great horned owl without and great tailed yeah. grackle with a hyphen. It gets pretty
0: just Pretty the greatest of one. the crested flycatchers yeah. according to its um, name yeah so
2: um yes it's one of your birds although i will um offer a mild corrective there they breed in colorado um like in, Do the, they? Far, in the yeah in the far, southeast? Far east yeah uh, uh, the east basically the east. yeah, yeah. Okay. um so yeah we're the um colorado's other drainage in the east so you know obviously arkansas and um platte but also the Rickory river in the east central part of the state uh, has breeding great crested flycatchers and hmm. and also in the east of the southeast and that they are also down there so um we get really sort of a little bit of a flavor of the uh the east uh and the far eastern part of colorado with a you know by the way a handful hmm. of breeding great great crested flycatchers it's not sort of like a I i remember when i lived in new jersey it's like you couldn't stop hearing that
0: Whee! oh yeah they're everywhere yeah yeah,
2: yeah and, and i'm sure it's the same in, in north carolina it's the um, same in my well. neighborhood
0: yeah right. we have some large oak trees that have some um, cavities in the some mm-hmm. of the outer branches and yeah there, there's a pair that's been there for several years not sure it's the same pair that comes back every single year maybe it is maybe it isn't but they certainly make the same noises every single yeah. summer
2: yeah, you mentioned cavity so uh, that's a cool mm-hmm. thing about all th- that bird and the other ones in its genus that they nest in uh, tree holes, you know, excavated mm-hmm. in our case by flickers, and in your case by flickers,
0: probably like flickers,
2: maybe. maybe right, yeah, maybe, and hairy woodpeckers, right? And yeah, so, it's a neat thing. oh, and you know they um they they take to the bird boxes,
0: yeah, they do. I've seen bird boxes out with them, yeah, like the screech owl boxes and stuff. That sort yeah, of size. I mean, I yeah. kind of
2: get it with like screech owls and uh, bluebirds because they're mm-hmm. even like wood ducks are kind of iconic. Mm-hmm. But I remember years ago, I'm um, just talking to sort of like a. Just a local, and he told me he was putting up his uh great crested flycatcher box. And I thought that was the coolest thing that you know yeah. somebody wanted to. Do, I put up a box for a great crested flycatcher. It's a great looking bird. I mean it's yellow and rufous Very and gray yellow. and yeah, has a, it has a big, big what's crested, and it's just I mean, it's not your dinky little, you know, drab flycatcher. It's a colorful, noisy, charismatic bird.
0: Yeah, for sure. They make a ton of noise, they're a lot of fun. I, I don't always see them. As often as I yeah. hear them, because you know they're they're quite common in the southeast or across the east, and mm. you know once you see your first one of the year, you kind of just oh there's another great crystal flycatcher. Put mm. it on the eBird checklist because you hear I, the weep every I, single time or the chatter that they make. Um, yeah. They're always fun to get a good look at because they I, I you'll always underestimate exactly how kind of richly lemon yellow that that underparts are. Um, they're very they're surprisingly brightly colored and also just very bright rufous in the flight feathers as well mm. and the in the wings and the tail and that really stands out when they're when they're fly catching and you see them flying around it. It's a very richly colored bird. Yeah. Um and under underappreciated for being, you know, brown and yellow, but they're they're really nice brown and yellow.
2: Our default bird in that genus in yeah. uh, Colorado is the uh the ash throated flycatcher. Uh-huh. And it's a great bird too. I don't mean to throw the oh, uh, winter it's, the, it's on the
0: list. It's a regular winter uh vagrant in, but in Yeah, you know, after in you've the been
2: seeing like Literally dozens or more of ash-throated flycatchers <laughs> during the like the summer in Colorado. And you see a great crested. It's just it's it's like an upgrade, I guess. It's it's a bigger, a <laughs> uh, bigger bill, just yeah. brightly colored, louder bird. It's just sort of a it's like a great. It's sorry, like, It's like an ash-throated on on steroids. It's just an sure. um, amped up version of the ash-throated flycatcher.
0: I love the fact that they um, they frequently have very big and messy nests with lots of uh, kind of stringy bark and and leaves yeah. and uh, mosses and especially they they love to use a snake shed snake shedded yeah. skin in their nest sort of famously uh, I've seen so many photos in in various nature magazines of great crested flycatcher nests with like a a long tail of a shed snake skin hanging out the the front of the cavity it's a uh, yeah it's it's an appropriately kind of wild uh, behavior for a wild bird
2: yeah this is a bit of a uh, a sidetrack but I'm, I'm good with that but i just before we Started speaking today. Um, I was actually just fact checking some stuff on the nests of uh, two other flycatchers uh, mm-hmm. in the east: Acadian and um, Yellow-bellied. No, they're not great crested, I realize, but uh, just how ridiculously different their nests are. Mm-hmm. So, like Yellow-bellied's nest, like essentially in the ground, like un- like under like yeah. um, roots and like uh, peat moss banks and, yeah, I was and stuff say, like, like tamarack that. Tamarack bogs, yeah, And, and like then um, like Acadians here, know, they 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 play it and they play it risky. They they make these. Uh, you talk about messy. These incredibly disheveled, messy looking nests and they're like always like you know precariously dangling yes. from a, a branch oh, like, over yeah, like a absolutely. highway or, or a river or something like that it's like yeah you know, like on the I very
0: mean, tips of the branches like yeah. in a little fork and, and they always yeah. look like they're about to fall apart and like yep.
2: and like they're, they're strewn together with garbage <laughs> and you know it's just <laughs> funny because you know we think of the the as being so similar mm-hmm. and you know i'm I mean, yellow Bell and acadian are not similar compared to some of the other species pairs in, in, in these, but they still look pretty similar.
0: It can but be very easily mistaken for each other, yeah, especially, in fall especially in the case. Yep.
2: Exactly right. But um I mean you talk about birds whose nesting ecologies are as different as can be. I mean the, hmm. the yellow bear, again, you are know, basically excavating nests like underneath like mats of sphagnum and yeah. then acadian you know going for those as i said like totally precarious overhanging branches like i always picture one, like over a ravine with like a waterfall below and the whole thing like looks like the slightest gust of wind would just blow it apart but i <laughs> so
0: think so uh, not a myarchus built a, uh, in yeah. that sturdy sturdy limb of a yeah, there, tree there's nothing like a woodpecker <laughs> hole that's the best yeah, way to that's go right <laughs> absolutely yeah. um i don't know what else to say about great Crescent flycatcher, or Arcus, other than I always look forward to when they come back to my neighborhood. I, they're one of the, one of the birds, well, it's kind of surprisingly, I don't have a ton of birds that sort of are in my immediately vicinity of like my front door, but they are, they are one of them. And every time I step out uh, to, to get the mail or to grab a package or something, I almost always hear that, you know, always, always chattering. They're so loud. Yeah,
2: it has such a different like mystique for us. It's it's a it's a good bird for, for I mm-hmm. mean by, by all birds are good I get but you it's an unusual bird. I mean when you hear great crested flycatcher it's something you want to sort of you know get on the phone and text your friends about or something yeah. like that. You know it's not a super rare bird and there are places you can actually go to in Colorado and reliably find them. But it's you know if you're doing a a big year you want to you know make a special trip to go look for great crested flycatcher. There you
0: go. Yeah. Is there are there any other kind of eastern like a suite of eastern species in those same places? Like does it feel like an eastern forest in the southeastern Colorado? Yeah, uh,
2: northern cardinal, Baltimore Oriole.
0: um, Is that a like a relatively recent sort of phenomenon, or has that always been the case for all those species? Because I, I, you know, I think of Baltimore Oriole and yellow-shafted flicker kind of coming together in the Great Plains because people have built. You know, they they plant trees for windbreaks and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's agent. where I was going
2: with that. So yeah. um, that apparently has helped a lot. Yeah. Um, or at least maybe I should say help, but it's altered the uh, the um uh, Ava fauna quite a bit mm-hmm. with that sort of greening of the uh, the prairie, you know, the uh, the shelter belts and so forth coming across. Yeah. So the basic idea is that places like eastern Colorado, eastern Wyoming, you know, western Nebraska, western Kansas um, have a lot more eastern birds than they used to. Some of that's very well documented with birds like, for okay. example, blue jay, uh, which definitely have you know benefited from um, uh, planting trees. Um, Boy, the record's really poor once you get back in the 19th century, though, so we're not yeah, really right. sure <laughs> about yeah. that. But, no, in general, uh, these uh, these eastern birds certainly are attracted to um, human-altered habitats, yeah. and, and by yeah. which I mean trees.
0: So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trees, yeah. Okay, let's hit the the number generator. Let's, let's see what we do got the number here. generator. Okay. Three thirty-eight. We're say we're oh, heading back. back oh, weird. Down. We're doing passerines today. Yeah, it's a passerine day, and we've already done this one, so I'm going to skip it. It's bird's okay. blackbird. Please go back and listen oh, to another okay. episode. We're going back okay. to two eighty-two passerines again. Can't break them. Oh, the ubiquitous, um, the ultimate passerine, the world around. It is the house sparrow. The it starling. is the house sparrow. Oh, it is the house sparrow what is there to say about the yeah, house sparrow I, I mean
2: um that's the thing there's so much to say about the, the, the house sparrow um so you, I'll, I'll back up here it's it's not indigenous to nope. north carolina or colorado the or anywhere. english sparrow it, 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 the alternate the, name the, right so um so it's a, it's along with the starling and the rock pigeon and the collar dove and some others a bird that originated elsewhere um yeah, the house sparrow arrived in New York City in the uh, 1840s um, to control insect pests, and that didn't really uh, pan out. Um, and it has pretty much taken over the whole of the, uh, the well, almost all the AB area, not all of northern Canada and parts of Alaska, but um, wherever there are people, there are house sparrows. I um, mean, you, you're taking a, I know it's not really a birder's bird, but uh, certainly a biologist's bird. Um, so much about the biology is just so. Um, so extraordinary um it's one of the really great kind of um like living examples of evolution in action the uh, the populations in uh, the united states and canada um have evolved significantly from their european counterparts um and not just like genes that you know with junk you know genomic material but like they like I can't remember if it's longer or shorter, but like different morphologies. like Wings have changed. Tails have changed. I don't know, my beaks or something have changed as well. So uh, they're evolving quickly in the United States and Canada. Um, the way they acquire their plumage is really, really unusual c- compared to most of our birds with you know, wearing down into their bright plumage in the spring, which is so strange. Uh, their vocalizations are, are fascinating. So it's a great bird. I, I know that it's one that... Um, you, you mentioned uh, brown, you know, putting a not brown crest, putting a great crested flycatcher in your bird checklist, and not thinking about it. I mean, <laughs> multiply that by a factor of two thousand for the uh, for the poor house sparrow. But, yeah. Um, yeah, So
0: Those uh, those county listers uh, in North Carolina, like we know where to find house sparrows in every single county in mm-hmm. the state, and it's the Home Depot parking lot or the right. or the town square of whatever little you know county seat that you are in um you drive through the ornamentals around the courthouse and you can mm. you, with your windows down and you can usually hear house sparrows uh cheeping away in there um you know people look for them for their own sort of listing games mm.
2: yep. yeah you mentioned um house sparrows and like home depots and i think did you say home depot or something like that but home depot yeah
0: so that's the way that they yeah.
2: differ from say like uh, european starling or a um, rock pigeon so they are uh, what we call obligate commensals they actually have to be around humans they like they hmm. they always occur around humans where starlings can do very very well without humans at all and rock pigeons you know can nest on you know like the grand canyon and stuff uh like that so apparently from what we could gather that house sparrow um is completely dependent on humans and that makes it a fairly unusual bird hmm. most birds you know many birds can tolerate humans but like needing humans is quite unusual uh among birds also um you sort of set me up for this you talk about house sparrows cheeping away and of course and it, Nate may know where I'm going with this but they do it sounds to our ears like they say cheap that's like what we humans yeah. hear but but yeah so we know though that their songs kind of like the song of the Henslow Sparrow um are actually very rich oh, and, right. and complicated yeah so um if you like slow down the song of a house sparrow by like you know 25 down to 25% or so slow up by 75% it's a much more kind of Robin-like uh rising hmm. and falling um sort of a whistle mm-hmm. or so like, yeah yeah we well, hear we hear chirp 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 yeah. chirp but it's really sort of huh. um, yellow green vireo is like a, another one that supposedly just chirps but if you slow it down it sounds like um in fact it's often sometimes likened to a house sparrow but mm. if you slow it down it, it, it sounds more like a uh, like a robin or a, or a vireo so again i i get that the house sparrow probably never will rise to the top of the list of a birders, you know, know, hot list or something like that. But it's a biologically fascinating bird, and I uh, commend its study to one and all.
0: You know, it's interesting. The bird before we got to House Sparrow was Brewer's blackbird, which is Mm -hmm. named for Thomas, the ornithologist Thomas Mayo Brewer. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with the Great Sparrow Wars of the 1870s, of which Thomas Brewer was a Main protagonist or antagonist, depending oh, I mean. on where that, you come down glad on it. That angle,
2: I I'd forgotten about, but yeah, the the, the, this...
0: the, the, the random number generator knows, I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yes, yeah, sp- sparrow wars. I mean, have been waged, I guess, ever yep. since
2: 1840 or whenever they arrived here. But um in the 19th century, there were those who viewed house sparrows as very virtuous for their capacity to you know, Thomas Sparrow was large, one of them. Yeah, yeah. Concepts of um, quantities of, of insects and others who did not. Um, they. Um, not as severely as starlings, but they do this: uh, evict yeah. other uh, species, uh, you know, indigenous species from their from their nests. Um, so that's where some of that concern has um has arisen. I should note, by the way, the house sparrow is a declining bird, uh, and, yeah. and it's uh, you know it's both in
0: both in, at uh, in its native range and and, and here it, actually yeah, in the United States, right. in Canada yeah. in these
2: days. Yeah, so I don't think it's an imminent danger of extinction. But uh, you mm-hmm. know, when you talk about a bird that you just didn't really think to ever be concerned about, uh, the house sparrow is one that, especially back in its home range um, in, in Eurasia, is um, declining severely mm. in places. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Not enough people, I guess. Uh, you,
2: well, actually, that's that they, That may well be it, yeah, changing agricultural practices.
0: Changing agricultural practices and changing architecture practices, yeah. actually, because yeah. there are fewer places for yeah. house sparrows to make their nests. Evidently. Right.
2: so something I've read, and I, I've certainly read this. I just don't know how true it is or how testable the hypothesis is, but that the... Um, the advent of the automobile, especially in the United States, um, brought about a sharp drop in house sparrow populations because they <laughs> were so dependent on um, foraging and manure from horses. Um, <laughs> now, again, that, 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 there's something about that that sounds a little bit, you know, anecdotal, <laughs> to be generous, um, but you know, it is interesting how a change in human technology can uh, indirectly affect populations of birds.
0: Yeah. Yep. Well, it was uh, it was the famous ornithologist Elliot Coos. Who no, was on the other side of the Great Sparrow War? Right. Who was he did not did not like sparrows at all? Yeah, he him Brewer went after it. it he got actually kind of nasty. Um, I guess Coos, who lived longer, ended up making some snipes at <laughs>
2: Thomas Brewer. That sounds very yeah Coos like, <laughs> cows. Yeah, that sounds very much like him. So I can yeah. believe that. That's funny. Well,
0: you, go. you thought you thought the bird names issue was uh, contentious? Well, yeah, we well, get to the Sparrow Wars of eighteen seventy. So.
2: Yeah, and, and by the way, was um I'm trying to remember? Didn't um one of the flycatchers catchers his name for, for cows? It was, it's it greater, be, it's
0: greater peewee. That it's greater be, peewee. That's that right,
2: cows flycatcher? Um, cows. flycatcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but we're, we're, the, the person we're talking about, in. who was a um, very colorful figure in ornithology, he um, and I'm going to uh, miss a few details here, but I think he was involved in like a channeling the dead or something I, 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 <laughs> no no seriously i i think he was like a fairly important figure in like like mysticism or something you know along with ornithology so um he um he was a renaissance person that's that's for sure but
0: yeah uh, and he lost his peewee a greater peewee is a better name anyway but that's um, yeah, a, a great name uh anyway all right let's see what we have uh next let's see if it'll send us to the top yes it does 66
2: all right, so back in hummingbird territory, or a little bit later, I guess, in the
0: checklist. But uh, yeah, it is another hummingbird. Oh, it's another uh, hummingbird! Okay, boy, the the um random number generator wants us talking hummingbirds. It's a ruby throated yeah. hummingbird. Oh wow! Um, so so we're flipping. We're flipping. Uh, this one's our regular hummingbird. The Rufus was a vagrant, and this is uh, a vagrant for you. Not a vagrant. Or, though. No, uh, do they uh, they
2: breed. Un, no, they don't breed. But they're they're an un, 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 uncommon migrant. And uncommon. you Yeah, you were talking earlier about the um sort of how there's this like flip-flop or sort of flip the switch with regard to the occurrence of rufus and um, ruby-throated hummingbirds um, mm-hmm. in North Carolina. It's kind of like that with us as well. We we don't really start to see ruby-throateds until September. Uh, there <laughs> seems to be a pulse of them coming through the far eastern part of the state. It's one of our uh, vagrant migrant, whatever you want to call it, you know, stealth vagrants or stealth migrants. Yeah. There surely are many yeah. more of them than people realize. So we have a, a look-alike right. bird, the black-chinned hummingbird in the same, yep. same genus, which is um, as, even the males, honestly, can look very similar unless you get them in in good light and then with the uh the young birds which is mostly what we see with the ruby throat it's they're so similar so i think they're um greatly under detected here actually but uh it's you know it's the eastern version i guess of the uh the black chinned hummingbird they're the only two hummingbirds in the genus um and uh uh, ruby throat is this fabulous migrant that, you know, the bulk of the population goes right across the Gulf of Mexico in the winter mm-hmm. sorry, in the spring, which is even like really nasty, stormy weather. Black chin is a more um sedate and subdued bird. But um so yeah, yeah, Ruby thorns and it's really, I mean Certainly, if we were doing this 30 or 40 years ago, we'd be saying it's the only hummingbird in the East, yeah. away from South Texas, where you have, of course, a um, buff breasted But, um, but um, it, it's a bird that is increasing, I think, like, like, actually really biologically increasing in Colorado, along with mm. um, increased detections just with you know better birders with cameras and you know being able to share the sightings online and getting uh, expert review. The one other challenge we have here is that as both the black-chinned and the ruby-throated uh, breeding ranges expand, they're coming into contact with each other, and we're seeing more hybrid. Um, yeah, hmm. there was a nice paper out of Oklahoma um, not too long ago. We Could get with a uh, Tim O'Connell if he's listening. He could uh, get his right on this, but uh, showing that a um, like a quite significant fraction of the birds at a banding station were hybrids. I like I want to say like wow. more than ten percent. So I mean, this wasn't like one in a hundred or anything like this. Like they how were getting... do you
0: how do you identify a hybrid Archilicus Yeah. So
2: um, well, they had you know you often have these. Um, like scales you know i uh, i've seen this with like um uh like golden crown i'm sorry golden wing blue and warblers, where you know if it has enough of this this much yellow on the breast or you know this much golden in the wing or something Mm -hmm. um like that so yeah they had like um like this sliding scale uh you know for males it was you know you know how much purple or red was on the throat but you know there, there are other differences like tail length um the shapes of the primaries um I guess with banded birds, they could be drawing blood. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that was the case uh, um, yeah. or or not, but they they presented... Well, There's been a few years since I read this paper, but what I recall was pretty persuasive evidence for a substantial number of hybrids at that banding station in Oklahoma.
0: Wow. Yep. Yeah, what to say about ruby-throated hummingbird. Probably on the short list of the most beloved birds in, yeah. in the East by not just birders, but by everyone who doesn't have a hummingbird feeder out uh, their kitchen window. Uh, to attracts ruby throated hummingbirds. Always get questions when people find mm-hmm. out that I work in birds. When are the hummingbirds coming back? Should I? When should I put my feeder up? When? 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 <laughs> when are they going to get here? Um, and they always, they always, they always get here eventually. Yeah, I, I think if I made a list of the most popular birds, at least in this state, probably in surrounding states, well as well, you'd get like northern cardinal, eastern bluebird, uh, purple martin, and ruby throated hummingbird. Mm-hmm. All those, those are the fearsome yep. foursome. That's the mm-hmm. Those are the ones that I mean. People love them. They're they're year round now here. Um, there's a right, significant yeah. number of birds that overwinter in the outer banks on uh, Hatteras, which is has kind of very moderate temperatures throughout the winter. There, lots of them. Love, love a ruby throated. Easy. I don't put feeders up because I'm too lazy to maintain <laughs> the the sugar water. But I still. I mean, my neighbors have them, and I hear them yep. buzzing by. Sure. Uh, in the summer months, going back and forth. So, yeah. C-
2: can I inject a, a note of mild controversy into our proceeds? Please. That's, it that's has to good do with content. the, the age old question of uh, leaving up your hummingbird feed. Oh, <laughs> of yeah. all the things we could sort of get worked up about, we as birders, I mean, that's probably like. The bottom of my list. Um, <laughs> I'm not convinced it's bad for hummingbirds at all. And even if it is, I mean, something like uh, if you want to make a difference, you know, planting trumpet vine or something like that would be there such you go. A yeah, it makes it easy. Sort of yeah, thing, thing to do. So um, yeah, we have um, every year. It seems like our black chins stay a little bit longer, and it's typically these uh, these young birds and what's harm in giving them a little bit of an extra boost before they, they're going to, most of them are going to migrate south anyhow, and this idea that yeah. you're sort of like, you know, yeah. luring them to their death, I don't think has much you know, validity behind it at all. So, <laughs> I, I mean, if you want to take down your hummingbird feeders, you're welcome to take down your hummingbird feeders, but if you leave them up, I don't think you're doing anything wrong or bad for the birds, and honestly, they probably appreciate it um, as well. As with regard to hummingbirds in the um, in the summer, and, you know, humming, feeding them is an absolute craze in Colorado the same way mm-hmm. that it is in mm-hmm. winter and, 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 well, all, all year round in, in North Carolina. Um they get a lot of food from other sources as well. I mean, yes, they're coming into the hummingbird feeders sort of the way we all make a, the occasional trip to a McDonald's or something like that. But by and large, I mean, they're feeding on flowers and they're also eating a lot of insects uh, as well. Um, so I just don't think that you're
0: doing anything bad to hummingbirds. Other no, than giving A bit of a, 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 a supplemental boost, boost. Yeah. before they migrate south, exactly. Yeah. I'm constantly ans- you know, answering the question, when, yeah. when should they put up there? I, I always just say beginning of April you're easy there even if they come earlier and they frequently do they'll just feed on nature natural stuff
2: that's um that's something that has um Thanks for bringing that. But has really changed since I've been in Colorado. The broadtails are getting back earlier and earlier and earlier. Yeah. So broadtail, with part of Colorado where I live is sort of like the uh, the ruby throated. It's like the really common, easily seen bird, It kind of looks the same green above, red Mm red on the the throat. But um, yeah, the the first broadtails now are getting back around April first, and you know they go straight to the Rockies, where at that time of the year, you know the lows can be near zero Fahrenheit. You know, for until like May, Uh, that's not what's limiting them. But as long as their flowers to feed on, they're doing just fine. And those ones that are getting up to meadows in the Rockies, they're not going to hummingbird feeders at all. They're actually finding food, insects to some extent, and also- Sapsucker wells. Early. Yeah, Zap, yeah that, actually, mm-hmm. that could well be, yeah. And then um, to early season um, flowers, at yeah. least at middle elevations. So, um, yeah. So I, in addition to how long should we leave the feeders out in the fall, there's the question of how early should we uh, put them out. And that's changed in my 20 yep. years in Colorado.
0: Yep. Uh, as early as you want, as long as you <laughs> want it, you're fine cleaning them out every once in a while. That's right. <laughs> that's yep. All right. Let's uh, let's hit it again. I think we had time for one more. Okay. Ted. Well, let's see what this is gonna be. Back down to the bottom. Three, two, two. Okay. On my list. That is speaking of another East Coast, West Coast species, uh- spotted tohi. Oh wow. The
2: spotted toey. Oh, formerly the rufous sided toe. It used to be yeah. all
0: one bird for the two of us. The
2: uh, eastern toey in uh, your part of the world and the spotted toe in my part of the world were uh, determined to be uh, distinctive separate species. So um they we no longer call them the rufous sided toe. Both of them have rufous sides, but uh, they're both yep, they their new names fit pretty well. The eastern toey has a primarily eastern distribution and the spotted toey, although highly variable, um uh does have spots on it in, in almost all plumages. So it's the um the very, very common tohi of sort of brushy habitats, especially in the interior west, but really all over the uh, western part of the uh, the continent. Um it sounds so different from the eastern towhee. Yes, That's true. It does eastern toey has same. that to me very sort of stereotype drink your tea and that chwink call. And then the um spotted tohi, depending on which population you're dealing with and we have some pretty distinctive populations here have um very different vocalizations. The one that um we have in my part of Colorado, um, we actually have several subspecies Arcticus and Montanus, but um they give these uh pretty buzzy calls. We were talking about um um bunting earlier. Mm-hmm. So they're just much buzzier and drier than the uh than the uh the eastern toey. And then when you get much farther west, um like west of the Sierra Cascades axis, you get um that sound so different they just get this single bzzz note i remember mm. the uh, the first time i ever heard those many many decades ago um i thought it was like a western wood peewee i mm-hmm. i just I, I because i'd heard spotted oh. towhees i certainly know all about I, I thought this yeah. was back in the days of rufus sighted towhee, by the way but the, the sheer of the towhees like around um back in county in california or somewhere is just utterly different from the drink your tea of the north carolina towhee. so um big differences in song differences in plumage differences in female plumage by the way so mm-hmm. um yeah the uh the extent of like black or brown on eastern versus um spotted is quite different so it kind of a cool example there where the uh the bigger plumage difference is uh, once you dial out the spots but but all the birds have those They're really between the females not between the males of the two
0: that there's not more than maybe three records in mm. north Carolina. very very infrequent i'm um, not a long distance migrant at all mostly sedentary mm. i think in the mm. in the west is that accurate i mean they don't they don't migrate a ton uh, a little bit not a little not bit yeah much. so those species tend not to show up in the east all that often mm. um yep. so there aren't, aren't all that many of them where i grew up in Missouri, though they oh, are seeing I, an increasing number yeah. of are they or aren't they spotted? Uh, I've birded that area. I've actually with yeah. your dad
2: once, and we mm-hmm. had some um, uh, problematical towies, as I recall. That was
0: not the case when I was when I was oh, a okay. young birder, or at least I didn't pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought we had the pretty straightforward eastern uh, mm-hmm. towies, but they are they are seeing more of those kind of weirdos.
2: Uh, yeah, we saw things. several towies that I think we just uh, like e birded as. You know eastern slash spotted or something mm-hmm. like that I, I remember that hey tell us a little bit about uh eye color and towies and um, oh well North, that's an North eastern Carolina. toey thing yeah, i don't right, know if right, we right. want to oh, save oh, it oh, for... oh, where are we? oh that's right we're, spotted, <laughs> we're talking about spot
0: i can talk oh, about eye color because oh, you know here in the southeast well you know we'll just remember and rehash this when we eventually get to 323 right. <laughs> which is uh eastern toey um yeah, so our toys we have the two different subspecies of toys that have different eye colors here. in, um, And it is a little bit of a clinal thing. Um, right. Where I live in the Piedmont, all our Toys have bright red eyes, um, mm-hmm. kind of deeply blood red eyes. But as you get closer and closer to the coast, and especially in the Sandhills, um, the kind of the unique kind of longleaf pine savanna ecosystem, you the toys' eyes get lighter and lighter and lighter right. and lighter and lighter. And some of them are kind of shockingly white-colored eyes and it's the sort of thing that really stands out to you when you're used to seeing the eye of a tohi kind of blend into the face um, those those white colored eyes um, you know on the southeast coastal plain and in the sandhills um, they can be quite shocking and then sort of in between like between the sandhills and like Raleigh sometimes you'll get kind Of orangey colored eyed tohis, so there's kind of a gradient, but um, th- it can be very shockingly different. That's interesting, yeah. On you warm.
2: know, I know we're no. talking about the wrong bird. I, I, until yeah, it's right. a moment
0: ago, when it's you towhee covered, time. when yeah, I would have guessed Just that think your um, tea
2: time, yeah, most of your birds were pink eyed orange. I didn't realize you had those full on white eyed.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know the um, in Florida, they're mostly, they're
2: mostly, yeah, the white-eyed you get ones. like there's like yeah. Allen eye and then there's like yeah, Riley exactly. eye, I think is your, I, I can't remember the, the different names, but yeah, there's definitely um, a lot going on with tohi eye color, yeah, sort of from like the. You just say like the, the Piedmont South and um, yeah,
0: it's yeah. it's an interesting thing. It's been a while since I've seen one of those uh, light-eyed towhees. Light yep. would probably be a better way to say it than white, mm. because they are, as you say, pinkish, apricotish, orangey. Yeah, um, yeah that's you know, good. there could be yeah. a, a range.
2: Yep. Hey, and also uh, trying to yeah. Sorry for that uh, eastern Toey digression, but uh, <laughs> at least uh, transitioning this back to the spotted toe. I'll note that in um, parts of northeastern Colorado, we have a sort of classic uh, hybrid or integrated zone there uh-huh. as well. With a uh, there's a sort of a small sliver of Colorado where many, maybe most of the toies you've know, sort of looked at carefully enough appear to have characters of both uh, eastern mm. and um, and spotted Toey in them. But a um a kind of a good clean straight up eastern Toey is. Quite a rare bird for us in in Colorado. They they show up for sure. You know, birds Mm -hmm. that are just probably just vagrants from I don't know North Carolina or somewhere like that. But um, yeah, our towhees are pretty much gonna be spotted or um, spotted eastern mixes.
0: Uh, And even those kind of phenotypically eastern birds can have some spotted genes in there to the extent that it's it can be very difficult. I know in Mm -hmm. California they've had trouble, you know, determining whether a vagrant eastern towhee is uh, acceptably. Eastern enough to count on a on a list uh, i i feel it feels like a very like an impossible task yeah
2: I, um it, we were talking about earlier about like these sliding scales of characters mm-hmm. oh and we were talking about the uh, archaelaus hummingbirds and um i, I don't envy the poor records committees that have to deal with birds like yeah. that and I, at some point they came up with a uh a sliding scale for uh, back back to blue-winged and golden-winged dwarves. I, I think it, like if it was at least seven eighths of you know of the way <laughs> it, it counted or something um like that sure. and i mean because i mean every honestly every blue winged and golden-winged dwarber in the world probably has a little bit of each other's you know ancestry yeah. in them so yeah you don't want to get into that 15 16th or whatever it is there and uh but you know, they created quite really i mean I'm, and i'm you know, on a serious note here, sort of a, a fairly um, impressive, like, um, like multi-dimensional space of characters, you know, that sort of, you know, would define a bird as one or the other. And I thought that was kind of neat.
0: So. Yeah. So he tacked You've got like little, yep. yeah, you don't know which one it's going to be. <laughs> Indeed. All right, Ted, we have done it again. We have again, filled another uh, hour, better part of an hour with birds. amazing uh, random birdie content. Thank you once again for stepping in uh, yep. and filling in where, where need be. Um you can find Ted I don't know wherever ABA is doing stuff please, uh, please I will say that
2: you will find me on the date that this airs doing a Christmas bird count by go. the way with our uh, ABA colleague, uh, Leanne Pilger. she and I will oh, be doing great. yeah we'll be doing the same uh, sector for the Fountain Creek Christmas bird count um again today as you're listening to this if it is in fact December 14th <laughs> uh, yep. when this uh, when this airs so uh, we're into Christmas count season for sure
0: Yep Yeah. hope you're hope you're enjoying this on uh, on a CBC near you and having a great CBC (laughs) season. And uh, thanks again, Ted, and we'll see you around.
2: See you around. Thank you.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like the podcast, but membership gets a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like OM Systems, that's Olympus Cameras, Beauty Books, Corner Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can even give the gift of birding. In a manner of speaking, by gifting a membership to the birder in your life, or even yourself—I won't judge—you can find out how to do that at aba.org/join or aba.org/gift-membership. Special shout-outs this week to Laurie Devito of Somerville, South Carolina; Chris Parsons of Tempe, Arizona; Barbara Pender of Irvine, California; and Justin Kwong of Kamloops, British Columbia. All of them recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who points out that during the rest of the year, the seven-armed candelabra is called a mina aura, but during this time of year, it has an eighth candle, making it a hanatouia. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that if a ground-dwelling passerine is fried in oil and served with applesauce or sour cream, it's a medolatke. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who delight this time of year in telling the story of when the diving birds drove out the swallows from the pond. The story of the the story of Lunda and the mackagreebs. You can find us online at aba.org on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are at ABA birds. Questions, comments. Okay, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird like Tom. See you next week.